Hello listeners. So my name is Nicola Wood and I am here recording my first ever podcast. How exciting. A bit about me, I guess you want to know a bit about me and why the hell you should listen to me, especially when it comes to something so important as cancer. So I am a young woman, I'm now in my 40s, but in my 30s, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I'll go into a little bit more about my story in a bit. It essentially changed my life, as it does, as I'm sure if you're listening and you have had a diagnosis, then it will be doing the same to you. And really, it changed my life in many ways, but I would like to say that now, all I can think of is positives. But I wanted to create a space where I could arm you with the truth. I'm a strong believer in the truth and I would rather know the full story, not sugarcoat anything. And that's how I was throughout my whole diagnosis, throughout my whole treatment. Just tell me the truth and then I can deal with it. I'm a strong woman. That's what helped me. The aim of the podcast is to support people with cancer, but not in namby-pamby way where we're going to listen to loads of sad stories because we're not, you know, there will be some hard hitting stories, but essentially what I want to do with the podcast is leave you with inspiration, hope, and some truths that would help you get through it. I'm currently writing a book about 100 reasons I'm actually pleased I got cancer, which sounds brutal. That's my style. I hope that we can have some discussions, get some really interesting guests on, talk about how they navigated cancer how it changed their life, not just for the worse, but for the better as well, and leave you with some hope for your future. Some of the things that I want to address in the podcast are things that I felt were specific to me. So as a 36-year-old woman, a businesswoman with a team, with a small child, with a house and car and everything to pay for, I really did feel quite alone. I felt like I knew loads and loads of people who'd had cancer, but none of them were like me. None of them were trying to juggle the school run and run a business whilst going through cancer treatment. And I felt really quite isolated. And so what I want from this podcast is to appeal to people like me, the demographics of cancer. Obviously, statistically, you would be older. I really want to connect with women who are juggling all of those younger problems that we have in our 30s, our 40s, our 50s, when you are still working, when you may have a young family, when you may be running your own business or in a corporate position where you know you still want to work through cancer and all of the challenges that brings. So that's the kind of things I want to cover in the podcast and hopefully you'll find it relatable with the guests that we bring on. As this episode is all about me, I guess you need to know my story. So we'll just go in a little bit into that. From age 21, I've been self-employed, ran a small hair and beauty business in my hometown of Sunderland, plodded along very nicely, was married, had a little boy, running a small team of about five people at the time, just kind of plodding on through life. And I was actually invited to a charity ball at the local rugby club. And as you do, was trying to squeeze into a dress that was probably a little bit too tight for us. I was actually trying to adjust my boobs into this ridiculously tight dress, I'm going to say, a gold Lamia number it was. And as I was trying to get my boobs into this dress, very ungracefully, 
I just felt a tiny, tiny, tiny little lump. I was in a massive rush as well because I'm always running late. I kind of disregarded it, but I, I hadn't forgot that I, I kind of felt something there. Went to the ball with the girls, had a fun night and everything. Boobs looked great in the dress once I finally got them in. And it was the next morning, my husband was saying, oh, how was your night? And I was like, oh, it was really nice. I said, oh, I forgot to mention. I said, Steve, I think I've got like a lump on my boob. I says, would you mind seeing if I'm being paranoid? And I asked him to kind of feel this lump, which was very, very hard to find when I tried to look for it the next day. I could hardly find it. I almost gave up. Anyway, it was sat on my right breast. It was very much behind my breast, so it wasn't kind of in the front. And he said, yeah, I can feel something, Nicola. He says, but, you know, boobs are lumpy. He says, to me, that feels like your chest wall. It doesn't feel like your, your actual breast. I said, OK, went to work. But it was niggling us. It was that kind of niggling us that now that I knew where it was, I could keep putting my finger on it and I couldn't feel it on the other side. Made an appointment at the doctor's, went to the doctor's. Doctor obviously just said, yeah, there's definitely something there, but I don't think there's anything to worry about. We'll send you a two-week referral. Went to my local hospital, the Queen Elizabeth, and for one of these clinics where they do everything in once. Obviously, being in my 30s, I've never been to a breast clinic before for mammograms and stuff. But essentially, it's a one-stop shop and they just do everything on the day. So you have a physical examination with a ecologist and then you have a mammogram and then you maybe have different scans. So I went through the morning just on my own, went through all of these various tests. When it came to the... CT scan, the CT scanner said to me, oh yeah, can you point out the lump? He says, "Um, we are going to take a biopsy. He said, it's uh, nothing to worry about, it's totally normal, but we will take a biopsy. So I went back in with the consultant and the consultant said to me, nothing to worry about Nicola, it's a fibre medina, which I now know is like just a little skin growth or something like that. He said, "Uh, really not worried, just go away and forget about it. So I did just that. I went away and forgot about it and got on with my life completely for the next couple of weeks. I certainly did not sit and sweat it out. I had no reason to believe that there was anything wrong. Maybe two weeks later, I got a call from a breast care nurse who said, Nicola, we need you to come back in. The results of your biopsies there. And my words to her were, well, just tell us over the phone. I know that it's a fibre medina. I'm not going to waste my time coming through with the thinking I'm too busy. And she went, no, Nicola, I'm really sorry. We can't tell you results over the phone. Everybody has to come back in. And I was like, okay. So I literally put it off for, I want to say, a good week or so because I didn't want to break my diary. So I agreed to go back in about a week later. And when I got there, I just felt different. I felt suddenly a bit scared. I was sat in a room where everybody was sitting with their husbands or their partners. And I felt stupid for going on my own for a start. But I had. I just ran in as if nothing was the matter. And I remember the nurse coming to the door to call me in. And I remember thinking, this is not going to be all right. I just kind of had this feeling from the look on her face that it wasn't going to be all right. And when I got into the corridor, she was not alone. There was her and somebody else. I just knew. I just had a feeling. Walked into the room and my consultant held my hands and said, I'm really sorry, Nicola, I got it wrong. Uh, You do have cancer. That was the start of my journey. Those 10 minutes in that room on my own with the team were it was probably the scariest 10 minutes of my life because at the time you you just hear the word and in your 30s that word to me everybody I'd ever known with cancer was dead now you know 
I didn't know anybody who'd been through cancer treatment and been alive after. I just thought I was going to die. And I think that was my first question is, am I going to die? It's still difficult to talk about, I guess. It was very, very, very scary. That was that. And I'm sure we'll talk more about how we were diagnosed after. The hardest part of being diagnosed was that I was stupidly was on my own. And now I notice just how many women are on their own completely. Like, I'm fortunate I had somebody to go home to. You know, there are many, many older women who I notice now who are just on their own. Maybe they don't have the support, which again is why I felt like this podcast is critical so that people don't feel alone with that. One of the next questions that I asked after am I going to die was am I going to lose my hair? And that's because I'm a hairdresser and I've been a hairdresser all of my life hair for me is crucial and it is not vanity it is part of our makeup it's our genetic makeup it makes us who we are and it's it's your identity it's how you're recognizable it's what makes you look poorly and and so for me that was a critical part of the diagnosis was am I going to lose my hair but I didn't because my treatment didn't involve hair loss so that's good but what happened because of that after being diagnosed with cancer I then went through surgeries, tests, weeks and weeks and weeks at the hospital waiting for tests, endlessly waiting for results, which is really, I mean, it's the worst part if you're going through that. I'm sure you completely agree with me that actually waiting for a result is the most hideous part of having cancer. It is excruciating. It really is. You know, once you get the test results, I found that no matter how bad they were or how good they were, I could deal with that, but actually not knowing the data for a control freak like me was excruciating. So I spent weeks and weeks and weeks at the hospital and as a hairdresser, all I noticed was the hair, people with hair, people without hair, people with scarves and people with wigs. And in my opinion, bad wigs, I just kept thinking bloody hell there's got to be better than that surely you know I could just spot them a mile off and I'm noticing this day in day out day in day out and I was sat in a Freeman Cancer Hospital in Newcastle and when people say they have like a light bulb moment or an epiphany it just absolutely washed over me this epiphany that this is why I got cancer I got cancer so that I can improve what these wigs look like and I I know it sounds really cheesy and really cliche but it was just like just came over us and I turned to my husband and I said Steve this is why this has happened to me I got cancer because I'm meant to be here to help these people with the hair loss and he just looked at us like I was crazy because he's I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial in me thinking and he's used to me having a million big ideas a week and he said Nicola you're not doing anything he says you know we're here to get you fixed. You're certainly not doing anything. And, and I just thought to myself, yeah, watch this space, mate. Because <laughs> I just knew, I knew from that moment on that my life was to be helping people with hair loss. I spent the next nine months convalescing, having surgery, having radiotherapy, having hormone treatment, going to the hospitals, as you will all be really comfortable with now. I spent all of that time researching, really. I went up and down the country. I went to every single service I could. 
finding out what was out there for women with hair loss, what financial support they got, what face-to-face support they got, the processes involved through the NHS. I went to every wig shop, I went to every wig fitting shop, I went to the best ones in London and Manchester, I went to some really, really, really bad ones. And I just got a feel for what was out there. And honestly, I was just dismayed. I was just so sad. I just felt like there were services where people had a shower curtain pulled round people in a main salon. There were services that were just a cupboard shoved in the back of somewhere. There were so, so, so many services that you had to go to the hospital to get your hair. I mean, can you imagine going to the hospital one day to have your breast removed and the next day to pick up your hair? To me it was just crap it was really really old-fashioned it was really outdated it was as if people should be ashamed that they've lost the hair and you should go to this dark little cupboard and, and get this little wig and not discuss it and nobody would notice and I just thought it was bullshit if, if I'm honest and I just thought that I mean it was easy to improve because it was just so crap I spent months researching it absolutely is the number one reason why I didn't become absolutely engulfed and consumed by having cancer because I just had this project and so I went all over the country training. I trained with the very, very best in the country. I trained with the Trevor Sorbier team, my new hair team. I went to Germany and trained with the Ellen Will team. I've done training with American teams. I got the most qualifications that I possibly could in wigs and hair loss, which, you know, that's what we did so that I knew that I could be the very, very best that I could be. After that, I want to say like nine to 12 months after, I wanted to then create the space that was fitting for these people and that wasn't a cupboard it wasn't a hospital clinic it wasn't a shop full of mannequins which is hideously frightening and it's like something out of a 50s horror film I wanted to create a beautiful environment and I had a salon but it wasn't good enough in my opinion so I talked to my husband and told him that I wanted to borrow a shitload of money to create a space he said no and then I played the cancer card because I still had that one in my back pocket <laughs> and he said yes and then he spent the next year working 14 hour days to build it for us. About a year later we opened this purpose built space for important people with hair loss, medical hair loss. Basically that's what I've done ever since and kind of treat that service like I want to treat this podcast I always say that if you want the truth about hair loss then ask me and I'll tell you the truth I'm not going to sit here and say you might be the not 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 point one percent of people who don't lose the hair if you've been told that you're going to lose your hair with treatment then 100% you're going to lose it you know and I think that is more powerful than sitting not thinking your hair is going to fall out for three weeks and then it happening overnight because those are the women who I see who are in far, far, far more distress. People who plan for stuff, people who have the truth about stuff. It's empowering at a time when your life is utterly out of control. It strips you of your future. It strips you of your hair, your income, your ability to walk into Sainsbury's and be anonymous. You know, all of those things are gone with cancer. So the more truth that you can have, I feel the more that control that you have. And so that's what happened to me. And in the subsequent five years since, it's just spiralled really out of control in a brilliant way. I started off with a room and a purpose 
to never have any one of my clients have a shitty hair loss experience. I made a little video about what I wanted to do, which went viral. And from week one, I was just inundated, inundated with requests from women all over the country who just said, oh my God, you just get it. You get the feelings that I've got and can I come and see you or I had this bad experience or I had that bad experience. But everything you said in that video is just exactly how I'm feeling and can I come and see you and did that for probably a year or so and at the same time was a full-time hairdresser in my business and the more I did it the more I realized that like this was exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to help absolutely every person with hair loss and sadly again with cancer it very much depends on where you live it's a postcode lottery as to how much financial help you get. It's like a class decision as to whether, you know, if you work in a zero hours contract, you're screwed with cancer because you're not getting paid while you're off. Another barrier, if you can't get to the hospital, then how can you get your wig? If you had black skin, then you could only get a European wig. If you had financial barriers already and you lived in one postcode, you got more money towards a wig. And so for me, that wasn't good enough. I wanted to then make sure that absolutely nobody with any barrier couldn't get a beautiful wig, couldn't get an amazing service, couldn't get support from the very moment they found out they were losing the hair. So I knew to do that, that we had to be able to work with the NHS. So I started absolutely hounding the NHS. <laughs> I wrote emails after emails after emails, phone call after phone call after phone call, tried to learn how procurement worked, which, you know, I didn't understand how to write tenders and stuff at the time. And I'm a pro now, but I, I really wasn't back then. And so, yeah, after lots and lots of hard work, we managed to win a tender to our local NHS, which just meant that I could help everybody. I couldn't just help people who could afford wigs. We could help everybody. And since then, it's just been my mission to identify a need for an underserved person, whatever that underserved person may be, try and get into that community. So if I found that we were lacking, if I found a barrier, then I would use that as a way to get into that community. So I'm very proud to say that we're now... I can help every single woman in the whole of the Northeast, which covers something like, I think we've now got 20 different hospitals that we work with so that we can support everybody regardless of money. We do pop-up clinics in hospitals, In we go to hospices, we visit people in hospital, we visit people in hospices, we volunteer, we run support clinics, we educate nurses, we educate doctors, free training courses for charities so we try and just impact every single person that we can with hair loss and that is essentially what I've done since. So yeah that is in a nutshell kind of how cancer changed my life and what I've done with my life since. And I think that's why I feel in a position where I can speak to you, speak to our guests and hopefully give you some hope and some practical tips around the truths around cancer. I'm sure as the podcast goes on, you'll hear more about how I did, how I told my son, how I've lived with uh, body image changes, 
the uncertainty that we have after cancer. I really want that to come out naturally through the podcasts and, and through our guests. Lots of the questions that I had, I am certain that you've had, you know, like, do I tell my son I've got cancer? How do I do that? How do I live with the uncertainty that cancer brings? How do you cope with the endless scans that you have after cancer? The lessons that were being taught through cancer, you know, all of these questions you'll have and I'm hoping that we can discuss together um, throughout this podcast. I want this podcast to be a place where we can discuss really difficult subjects that come up with cancer. I don't want it to be listening just to sad stories. Through my journey if you want to call it that I went to every support group you know I I tried the online I tried the face-to-face I tried psychologists I tried everything that I could possibly do to be able to deal with the pressures of cancer but I just felt that you know it needed to be for me a bit more truthful a bit more brutal for want of a better word I didn't want somebody to stroke my head I'm not that type of person and so so many of the women that I meet now daily in my job are not that type of person so many women want to just power through it we don't take time to absorb what's happening but I want this to be a place of positive practical steps that we can take in order to overcome it and not to let cancer happen over us and not to us really and that's what I'm hoping this podcast will bring so to conclude I hope I haven't completely put you off. (laughs) I hope that I haven't scared you. I want us to come together, make a community, share helpful insights in uh, how we can overcome this, how we can learn to live with the uncertainty that cancer brings. Just be there for one another in terms of practical tips of how to get through it. Thank you for listening to the Hair Boss Not Hair Loss podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation and found some advice, some positivity and some inspiration. Head to the show notes for more information and to follow the podcast to keep up to date with future episodes.